Hello and welcome to a thoroughly medieval episode of Folksy, the folk literature podcast with me, Iser. Today's episode, as betrayed by the preview last week, is based around the English warlord who has featured in more remakes and reinterpretations in recent times than even Sherlock. Yup, today's tale comes from Andrew Lang's Tales of King Arthur. By the by, if you're new here, make sure to go to the official Insta handle at Folksy Podcast and drop a follow. You'll get to vote on new story selection, get interesting facts about the stories I do cover on here, and most importantly, you'll encourage me to post more on there. It's really a chore going online and not getting distracted by the literally millions of things happening to everyone, so do your part. <laughs> so before I go off on another uncharted tangent, let's talk a bit about today's tale. The book I'll be reading from comes to us from the pen of a Mr. Andrew Lang, fellow of the British Academy, and was published in 1918, at least this edition was. The legend of King Arthur though is much more ancient and rooted in what is formerly called the Matter of Britain, which along with the Matter of Rome and the Matter of France forms the great story cycle of medieval history, European medieval history that is. I'll just let the brilliant introduction by Mr. J.C. Allen immerse you more in the world that we'll be exploring today. The tales of King Arthur and his knights are of Celtic origin. The Celts were the people who occupied Britain at the time when the history of the country opens, and a few words are necessary to explain why the characters in the stories act and speak as though they belong to a later age. It is believed that King Arthur lived in the 6th century, just after the Romans withdrew from Britain, and when the Britons, left to defend themselves against the attacks of the marauding Saxons, rose and defeated them at Mount Badon, securing to themselves peace for many years. It was probably about this time that King Arthur and his company of knights performed the deeds which were to become the themes of stories and lays for generations afterwards. In olden times, it was the custom of minstrels and storytellers to travel through the land from court to court, telling of tales of chivalry and heroism. And for many centuries, the tales of King Arthur formed the stock from which the storyteller drew. In this way, the stories came to be handed down from father to son in Brittany, whose people are of the same family as the Welsh, as well as in Wales and England, and by this means alone were they prevented from being lost. But in the reigns of Henry II and Richard I, they were set down on paper, and so became literature. Before this, however, a British writer had written out some of the tales, and from him, as well as from the lips of the bards and storytellers of their own generation, the writers in the time of Henry II were able to collect their information. Well, the preface, introduction, whatever have you, continues in this vein for a while. But now that we're all revved up and clued in, let's dive into the tale of how the legend of Arthur, inside the legend of Arthur, came to be. Tales of King Arthur and the Round Table Part 1. The Drawing of the Sword Long, long ago, after Uther Pendragon died, 
no king reigned in Britain, and every knight hoped to seize the crown for himself. The country was like to fare ill when laws were broken on every side, and the corn which was to give bread to the poor was trodden underfoot, and there was none to bring the evildoer to justice. Then, when things were at their worst, came forth Merlin the magician, and fast he rode to the place where the Archbishop of Canterbury had his dwelling. They took counsel together and agreed that all the lords and gentlemen of Britain should ride to London and meet on Christmas Day, now at hand, in the great church. So this was done. And on Christmas morning, as they left the church, they saw in the churchyard a large stone, and on it a bar of steel, and in the steel a naked sword was held, and about it was written in letters of gold, Whosoever pulls out this sword is by right of birth King of England. They marveled at these words, and called for the archbishop, and brought him into the place where the stone stood. Then those knights, who fain would be king, took firm hold of the hilt, and they tugged at the sword with all their might, but it never stirred. The archbishop watched them in silence, but when they were faint from pulling, he spoke. The man is not here who shall lift out that sword nor do I know where to find him. But this is my counsel, that two knights be chosen, good and true men, to keep guard over the sword. Thus it was done. But the lords and gentlemen at arms cried out that every man had a right to try to win the sword, and they decided that on New Year's Day a tournament should be held and any knight who would, might enter the lists. So, on New Year's Day, the knights, according to custom, went to hear service in the great church, and after it was over, they met in the field to make ready for the tourney. Among them was a brave knight called Sir Ector, who brought with him Sir Kay, his son, and Arthur, Kay's foster brother. Now, Kay had unbuckled his sword the evening before, and in his haste to be at the tourney, had forgotten to put it on again, and he begged Arthur to ride back and fetch it for him. But when Arthur reached the house, the door was locked, for the women had gone out to see the tourney. And though Arthur tried his best to get in, he could not. Then he rode away in great anger, and said to himself, Kay shall not be without a sword this day. I will take that sword in the churchyard and give it to him. And he galloped fast till he reached the gate of the churchyard. He jumped down, tied his horse tightly to a tree, and running up to the sword, seized the handle and lightly and fiercely drew it out. Then he mounted his horse again and delivered the sword to Sir Kay. The moment Sir Kay saw the sword, he knew it was not his own. 
but the sword of the stone. And he sought out his father, Sir Ector, and said to him, Sir, this is the sword of the stone. Therefore, I am the rightful king. Sir Ector made no answer, but signed to Kay and Arthur to follow him. And they all three went back to the church. Leaving their horses outside, they entered the choir. And here, Sir Ector took a holy book and bade Sir Kay swear how he came by that sword. My brother Arthur gave it to me, replied Sir Kay. How did you come by it? asked Sir Ector, turning to Arthur. Sir, said Arthur, when I rode home for my brother's sword, I found no one to deliver it to me, and as I resolved he should not be swordless, I thought of the sword in the stone, and I pulled it out. Were any knights present when you did this? asked Sir Ector. No, none, said Arthur. Then you are the rightful king of this land, said Ector. But why am I the king? inquired Arthur. Because, answered Sir Ector, this is an enchanted sword, and no man could draw it but he who was born a king. Therefore, put the sword back into the stone, and let me see you take it out. That is soon done, said Arthur, replacing the sword, and Sir Ector himself tried to draw it, but he could not. Now it is your turn, he said to Sir Kay. But Sir Kay fared no better than his father, though he tugged with all his might and main. Now you, Arthur. And Arthur pulled it out as easily as if it had been lying in its sheath. And as he did so, Sir Ector and Sir Kay sank on their knees before him. Why do you, my father and brother, kneel to me? asked Arthur in surprise. Nay, nay, my lord, answered Sir Ector. I am not your father. Though till today I could not tell you who your father really was. You are the son of Uther Pendragon, and you were brought to me when you were born by Merlin himself who promised that when the time came, you should know from whom you sprang. When Arthur heard that Sir Ector was not his father, he wept bitterly. If I am king, he said at last, ask what you will, and I shall not fail you. For to you, and to my lady and mother, I owe more than to any one in the world, for she loved me, and treated me as her son. Sir, replied Sir Ector, I only ask that you will make your foster brother Sir Kay seneschal of all your lands. That I will readily, answered Arthur, and while he and I live, no other shall fill that office. Sir Ector then bade them seek out the archbishop with him, and they told him all that had happened concerning the sword, which Arthur had left standing in the stone. And on twelfth day, the knights and barons came again. 
but none could draw it out but Arthur. When they saw this, many of the barons became angry and cried out that they would never own a boy for king whose blood was no better than their own. So it was agreed to wait till Candlemas, when more knights might be there. And meanwhile, the same two men who had been chosen before watched the sword night and day. But at Candlemas, it was the same thing. And at Easter. And when Pentecost came, the common people who were present and saw Arthur pull out the sword cried with one voice that he was their king. And they would kill any man who said differently. Then rich and poor fell on their knees before him. And Arthur took the sword and offered it upon the altar where the archbishop stood. And the best man who was there made him knight. After that, the crown was put on his head. And he swore to his lords and commons that he would be a true king and would do them justice all the days of his life. There is a little story about the sword that King Arthur is legendarily said to have wielded, and it's a pretty tiny one, so we'll just continue on from here. The story is about the sword Excalibur. King Arthur, accompanied by Merlin the Magician, had left the comfort of the court to seek adventures. He had fought a hard battle with the tallest knight in all the land, and though he struck hard and well, he would have been slain had not Merlin enchanted the knight and cast him into a deep sleep, and brought the king to a hermit who had studied the art of healing and cured all his wounds in three days. Then Arthur and Merlin waited no longer, but gave the hermit thanks and departed. As they rode together, Arthur said, I have no sword. But Merlin bade him be patient and he would soon give him one. In a little while, they came to a large lake. And in the midst of the lake, Arthur beheld an arm rising out of the water, holding up a sword. Look! said Merlin, that is the sword I spoke of. And the king looked again, and a maiden stood upon the water. That is the lady of the lake, said Merlin, and she is coming to you. And if you ask her courteously, she will give you the sword. So when the maiden drew near, Arthur saluted her and said, Maiden, I pray you tell me whose sword is that which an arm is holding out of the water. I wish it were mine, for I have lost my sword. That sword is mine, King Arthur, answered she, and I will give it to you, if you in return will give me a gift when I ask you. By my faith, said the king, I will give you whatever gift you ask. Well, said the maiden, get into the barge yonder and row yourself to the sword and take it and the scabbard with you. For this was the sword Excalibur. As for my gift, I will ask it in my own time. Then 
King Arthur and Merlin dismounted from their horses and tied them up safely and went into the barge. And when they came to the place where the arm was holding the sword, Arthur took it by the handle and the arm disappeared. And they brought the sword back to land. As they rode, the king looked lovingly on his sword. Mitch Merlin saw and smiling said, Which do you like best? The sword or the scabbard? I like the sword, answered Arthur. You are not wise to say that, replied Merlin. For the scabbard is worth ten of the sword. And as long as it is buckled on you, you will lose no blood, however sorely you may be wounded. So they rode into the town of Carleon, and Arthur's knights gave them a glad welcome and said it was a joy to serve under a king who risked his life as much as any common man. And that was today's tale. This is another one of the myriad stories that I was lucky enough to explore during my childhood. While I was doing my research for this episode, I found that there are quite a few versions of this same legend that have been penned by as many authors over the centuries. The major facts about the tale, however, have remained the same as the ones collected by Sir Thomas Mallory in his original 1485 masterpiece Le Mort d'Arthur. It's a pretty morbid title, French for the death of Arthur. Sir Mallory actually named his work after only the final volume in his series. His publisher later changed it to the whole book of King Arthur and his noble knights of the round table. Much more comprehensive, wouldn't you agree? Speaking of versions, Mr. Andrew Lang, the author of the one we just explored, is famed today for his extensive works in the field of fantasy and folklore. In fact, we'll be exploring his version of the popular Arabian Nights stories in next week's episode. Wait, hold on. I was supposed to leave that in suspense for the preview, wasn't I? Oh well, let's do it anyway. So here's a sneak peek at next week's episode. What do you do when you see injustice in the world? What do you do when you see death dealt in error because of a broken heart? Do you run? Do you hide and ensure your own safety? Or do you spin a yarn long enough to ward off death's embrace? Find out in next week's Chilling Tale. Ooh, wonder what that's all about. Well, we'll soon see, won't we? And that's all for this episode of Folksy. Don't forget to tune in next week for yet another tale of mystery and wonder from folk literature. This is your host with a rap boast, Iser, signing off. <laughs>